Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. In the summer of 1680, a revolution swept through the deserts of Spanish New Mexico. Led by the fabled Pope, the Pueblo Revolt saw native warriors rise up against oppressive Spanish rule in the Rio Grande River Valley. After only two weeks of fighting, Pope's warriors accomplished the unthinkable, forcing the imperialists out of their ancestral homeland and inspiring revolutionaries for centuries to come. On this episode, we discuss the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 6 of the series, we're discussing American Rebellions, the winners and losers that help shape the modern American Republic. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, or by searching Wartime Podcast. You can visit my author's website for news, updates, events, And heck, even buy some books, bradykreitzer.com. For those so inclined, you can visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash bradyjkreitzer. Join the conversation, the community is always growing. And of course, you're home for everything wartime on the web. Exclusive bonus content and ways to contribute to the podcast, wartimepodcast.com. Stop me if you've heard this one before. It's a story of an empire with global ambition exploring all corners of the globe, moving into a region it hadn't been before, and having some success in spreading and building that empire. Eventually, though, the taxes they impose on the people who live there grow to be too large, and those people revolt. In the end, the imperial oppressors are pushed out, and the land once again belongs to its original inhabitants. Freedom, if you would, rings loudly. That might sound a lot like the events of 1780, the American Revolution. But amazingly enough, the story I just told you was another American rebellion. And it did not happen in 1780, it happened in 1680. Today's episode is about revolt. This whole season will be about revolt, as a matter of fact, but... This one's a little bit different. It's about a revolt that is actually successful. And why most of us are not familiar with the revolution of 1680. The empire that I just spoke of was not the one you're thinking. They weren't English. They weren't British. They didn't fly the Union Jack. They were Spanish. And the rebels that I was talking about were not Europeans. They were native peoples here in North America. Today's episode is about the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. How it happened, why it was successful, and again, why most of us have very limited knowledge of it, or in some cases, have never heard of it at all before. This is a cool episode. I like it. 
uh, because it lets us think outside of the box. It once again reminds us that history is not about black and white, but the gray area in between. History does not abide by uh, rules. History is not a study of straight lines, but jagged edges. And as historians, it's in those jagged edges that we live. Now, there's a lot we can talk about when we're dealing with the Pueblo Revolt of 1680, aside from the actual revolt itself and the amazing characters involved. And by the way, we will talk about that. But there's a lot of reasons we should talk about it. Whenever you are in a class, for example, uh, studying American History 101, and you talk about America's colonial experience, you're going to hear a familiar story. It's a story of the Virginia colony being founded uh, in 1609. It's a story of the New England colonies following shortly after, followed by the Dutch in New Amsterdam, the English once again in Pennsylvania, and the development of the Carolinas in Maryland. And that's the story you're going to get. That's at least for us as Americans, the story we are most familiar with. Uh, but why don't we study more the colonization of the other parts of America, especially the Midwest and Southwest? I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but the biggest one is that they're colonized not by England, but by Spain. Now, you might not consider what the Empire Spain does in the American Southwest, not just in the 17th century, but also, believe it or not, in the 16th century, the 1500s, way ahead of the English in that regard, as very American. They didn't speak English, which again uh, is America's primary language. They spoke Spanish. Or, in the case of the Pueblo people we'll talk about today, one of seven different languages. But if you ask somebody who lives in, say, for example, the modern state of Arizona, New Mexico, uh, or the great state of Texas, if they are American today, they would say yes. And because this took place on the very land in which they live, I think it's worth an important study. It shows that revolutions come in all shapes and sizes. And the primary revolution, the American Revolution, wasn't the first one here on this continent, not by a long shot. And certainly not the only successful one either. I'm pumped for this episode. I like it uh, because it lets us again think outside the box. So first things first, let's set the stage. Uh, and we're going to set the stage with a poem that we all know from being kids. In 1492, Columbus sails the ocean blue. Uh, he is Italian, but he doesn't sail for Genoa. Uh, or any other Italian kingdom. He was Genoese. He sails for Spain. And he discovers, if you can use that word, uh, North America. The reality is he's the first modern European to be in North America. And yes, I know the Vikings were there 300 years earlier. But he's the first that will come and stay. Columbus will have four expeditions, and he will really have exclusive rights to the New World. He, of course, representing Spain. By the time you get to the year uh, 1500, you're seeing numerous, numerous expeditions moving into the New World. By the time you get to 100 years after Columbus, New Spain, as they call it, is on the road to becoming 10 times larger than the original Spain itself. It is all of Central America. It is all of Mexico uh, and most of South America. 
It is all of Florida, some of the Carolinas initially. And the area we're going to talk about today, moving into more and more of the American Southwest. I love the desert. If you've listened to previous episodes, I'm a guy that lives in rural western Pennsylvania. Um, I live in the forest, effectively. Uh, and when I'm in the desert, I feel like I'm in some foreign world. Uh, it's just wonderful. Uh, when I do travel out west, I make it a point to get lost, safely of course, in that wilderness. Because I see the desert as a very lively place. A place where... Uh, that can appear maybe dead at first, but if you look closely, if you understand it, it's a very vibrant area. And for the Spanish, the reason I say this, uh, they're going to have a very similar opinion. And they're going to see a lot of opportunity there. And that's why it's important that we understand that not all empires are created equal. Certainly not the Spanish and the English. And not all empires have the same goals, or at least the same means of achieving them. One thing you need to understand about the Empire of Spain is that unlike the colonization we're most familiar with, English colonization, they are Catholic. And that carries a lot of weight. Because that makes their mission not only a commercial mission, not only an expansionist imperial mission, but also a religious mission. And their religion is to spread the influence of their church and therefore save the souls, so to speak, of the people involved, and once again, expand the net. That is, the Catholic world. And these are serious guys. You know, uh, that's one big difference between the English and the Spanish in terms of their North American empires. Uh, the English didn't care much for religion, at least not until you got to New England, uh, but the Spanish, they were pretty serious. And these were you know, in, in an insensitive way to say it, uh, you know, witch burners in a lot of cases. Uh, they were not afraid to kill for their faith. They were not afraid to impose their faith on others. And they certainly weren't afraid to do that by force if necessary. So we're going to go to the year 1539. And we're going to see one of the great conquistadors. Um, let me try that again. Conquistadores um, of history. Uh, Coronado. Now, great is a relative term. These conquistadores will do some pretty bad things, but uh, you can't deny the impact they'll have on history. It's enormous. Uh, it's not our job as historians to decide who is good and who is bad. That's up to you. We just tell the story. Uh, but Coronado will go on an expedition uh, from 1540 to 1542, and he will be the one that carries Spain as an idea, as a way of life, into the Great Southwest. He'll be the first European to see the Grand Canyon. He'll travel all through Arizona, New Mexico, North Texas, all the way, in fact, to Kansas. And he'll turn around and come back to Mexico. Everywhere he goes, he plants a flag. And he sees a myriad of native peoples in the region. That's 1539. Uh, he'll have some conflicts with them. There is a small war that breaks out in the region that is the feature of tonight's episode, uh, the North Rio Grande River. Many call the Tigüe War. And he sees these people are legitimate, social, civilized peoples uh, who have their own way of life and who will not take kindly to Europeans being involved. Coronado will leave the, uh, the North Rio Grande River 
today in the center part of the state of New Mexico in 1539. And it's really not until 1598 that you see real infrastructure of empire. Coming back to the North Rio Grande region again today, the uh, basically center part of the state of New Mexico and establishing themselves in the region. So who were the people that lived there? This is an episode that you need a lot of background information, and this is a good place to have it, right? Uh, the people who lived there were a group of people uh, the Spanish would collectively call the Pueblo people. And Pueblo, for them, the Spanish basically meant the city dwellers. There was a whole lot of different people who lived in the region. We're not going to get into that, largely because it's too specific for the allotted time we have. But you can spend your whole career studying this, and many do. There are really two groups of people in terms of social structure uh, in what the Spanish would call uh, New Mexico. Uh, the first were a mobile and nomadic um, hunting-gathering type of people. That included familiar names like the Apache. And they were pretty tough customers for the Spanish. But the second, the ones we're going to talk about tonight, were people who lived in organized uh, permanent settlements. Uh, and you may know some as well. People like the Hopi, uh, or the Zuni, uh, or the Toa. These are existing populations of people who are there. They have their own religious values. They're very ancient. They have their own ways of life. Uh, but what makes them one, what sort of allows them to be reified, if you would, to be made a thing by the Spanish, was the fact that they all lived basically to them, an outsider, in the same fashion. And by that I mean they lived in large communal structures uh, where multiple families would live that surrounded a central courtyard. And they called these the Pueblos. And they were front runners of um, perhaps like a modern condominium or apartment complex. And that's maybe a generalization, but it gives you a good idea of what we mean. One large structure that can be expanded in many directions, home to many peoples. And each one of these pueblos, each one of these individual complexes, and they were big. Uh, the Taos complex uh, being one of the most famous. Um, the Jemez complex being another. Was its own polity. They were their own people. Uh, they would not really take well to being told that you're all the same. Because they weren't. Uh, but again... That's one of the drawbacks of empire. It's that you have to organize the world, which you're trying to conquer, in a way that allows you to conquer it. And for the Spanish, this was the way that they chose to do it. Now, remember I said, Coronado first arrives in 1539. But you really don't see, again, the empire leaving its footprint until 1598. Whenever the Spanish first arrive... Uh, in the north, in the upper Rio Grande River Valley, uh, they see a population of about forty thousand Pueblo peoples living there. Again, each in their own different community, each with their own different value set, but general enough they can lump them into one group. And the Spanish, to them, see a lot of potential. That is to be a lot of potential souls to be saved, a lot of potential money to be made, and a lot of potential killing and subjugation for anyone who would stand in their way. A good example of this, to show you what I mean, uh, was that in 1598, 
Uh, when the Spanish finally arrived in force, what did they come with? About 130 soldiers and 10 Franciscan Catholic priests. So you're going to have a dual attack here. That sends a message. You have a military presence and you have a religious presence. And at the Acoma Pueblo, there will be a minor revolt. And the Spanish will suppress it brutally. The Acoma Revolt is going to set the tone. They order most of the men in the village to have their right feet cut off as a punishment. Uh, they will execute many, many more and enslave many more. Uh, this is the beginnings of the tension and the issues and the problems that will face both the Spanish and the Pueblo peoples uh, in the years to come. Now, one element of this that you won't see in other places, that is to say you won't see it in Virginia, and you won't see it in New England, and you won't see it in the Carolinas, is not so much the inherent friction between the native peoples and the colonizers, uh, but it's that, it's that Catholic angle, that, that religious side that the Spanish bring with them in their imperial conquests. Because there is no no room for growth uh, with the Spanish. It's their way or the highway uh, in the most extreme way possible. As I said earlier, the Pueblo peoples of the Southwest have an existing religious worldview. And it's a worldview that we would say matches, I think, many Native peoples in North America. Uh, they uh, believe in a sacred feminine figure largely associated with the, the cereal crop that gives them life, which is corn. Uh, they store corn in a sacred way, but also in a practical way. Because, again, you can't always count on a good harvest. And the weather in the American Southwest makes preserving a pretty sturdy crop like corn very possible anyway. So when the Spanish come, uh, and they see people uh, worshiping nature, and they see people effectively praying for rain, uh, as farmers are tend as farmers tend to do. Uh, they're very hostile to it. These priests will suppress this this religion anywhere they see it, and enforce theirs wherever possible. Because again, it's 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 a double edged sword. It's a way of yes, spreading your religion, but also bringing people under control. And they do it because it's worked for them previously. Uh, they build large uh, adobe structures all throughout the area. They call them missions. Uh, there's a famous one in Texas you may have heard of called the Alamo. And I have a good friend who lives in Texas. I think you have to put your hand over your heart when you say that. But again, the, the priests are not kind to this. Uh, one of the features they especially detest is called the Kachina mask. Uh, you see the Pueblo wear the Kachina mask in a religious way. They, they dance with it. They uh, express their, their fervor religiously with it. Um, we don't want to use the word pray because it's not exactly that. Uh, but in one case, I mean, for an example, the priest burnt over a thousand Kachina masks, each one of them sacred. Uh, in one fail swoop. And that's just one. So hopefully I'm starting to paint a picture of this one element of Spanish Empire, which makes it very different than anything else we, we're usually talking about in American history. Uh, and it's an important one. It's, it's important for the development of the country as America today, 
But it's also an important element of the development of the notion of America, because even though it's on the other side of the Mississippi in the 18th and, and, and 17th centuries, so that means we usually ignore it, uh, it doesn't mean that it's not important. Now, where do the military conquest and the religious conquest intersect uh, for the Pueblo peoples and the Spanish Empire? It's going to happen in 1675. The 1670s saw a major collusion of events, some intentional and some just by bad luck, that will allow for the Spanish to really catch the Pueblo people when they are down and really enforce their own ways uh, on, the, uh, on the very ancient social infrastructure uh, of the peoples. Uh, there's a major drought in the 1670s. So corn levels uh, are low. Now again, the Pueblo, they've lived here for uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. They know how to do this. Uh, the Pueblo have a lot of extra grain stored up in the event that they will have a drought. At that same time, the Spanish start to really impose their taxation laws on the Pueblo. Uh, they build a trade network. They slowly uh, attract the Pueblos more and more toward dependency. And then when the taxation comes, and it comes in the form of give us your corn, give us your surplus, give us your storage grain, give us the grain which you have saved for months, uh, it's when you start to see the combination of the drought and the taxation really, really hurt the Pueblo peoples. Uh, so much so that you begin to see an inversion of the very ancient economy of the American Southwest. So what do I mean by the inversion? Well, normally, uh, when the Spanish arrive, they're in a very hostile world, very different from Spain. It's the American Southwest. It's hot, it's dry. There's really only one way you can live there. Uh, and the Spanish are really living at the whims of the Pueblo people. Help us grow food. Show us how to do it. Maybe give us some food. And we had seen this in New England and Virginia as well. In Virginia, the Powhatan uh, showed the, the English how to farm. And they gave them food to get them through the tough times. We saw this with Massasoit, even last week's episode uh, in New England. It's happening there too. But that catastrophic decade of the 1670s, as I said, inverts the economy, so much so that by the end of it, the Pueblo have to go to the Spanish begging for food. And why is that? Well, there's not a lot of it, and whatever they had saved that would effectively keep them independent uh, was taken through force, confiscation, if you would, uh, by the Spanish Empire. So this is, again, a very, very tough time. Uh, for the Pueblo, but a great time for the Spanish. It looks like they're finally going to bring uh, the upper Rio Grande River Valley, the Pueblo peoples, uh, under their control. This is where religion and military intersect. The governor of the, of the region uh, was a man named Juan Francisco Trevino. And Trevino would begin to in use his influence, exert himself, uh, using the Catholic Church as a weapon to bring this uh, very weakened people to its knees. He looked for all of the uh, medicine men, all of the priests that lived amongst the Pueblos, and he brought them together, and he labeled them as sorcerers. This is 1675. He 
took them into the into the center of the town. He whipped them. He tortured them. Uh, and he and he executed some of them. Actually, three of them were hung. And this would be uh, one of these sort of watershed moments in the again very um, fragmented world that was the Upper Rio Grande River Valley. Many of these medicine men, many of these priests uh, amongst the Pueblo were locked up. They were kept in prison. Uh, they were sort of, maybe you could say, uh, aggressively swayed toward Christianity. But one of them, one of them, uh, whenever he was released shortly thereafter, would leave with uh, an animosity in his heart, an anger in his heart. And he would leave to try and rally his fellow man, his fellow Pueblo, against Spain. One of these things you're going to see this season is that these rebellions tend to have a very similar origin story. One guy gets pretty mad. Uh, But it's always someone influential. And it's always someone who already has the ear and has the attention of the people around him. We'll see it a lot. I mean, it's it's the stuff that good revolutionaries are made of. In this case, this this priest, this medicine man who has seen his own way of life effectively captured and replaced by the Spanish, uh, is a name that is deeply revered in New Mexico still today. Uh, his name is Pope. How revered is Pope? Not to spoil the ending. Uh, but if you go to the Capitol Dome in Washington, D.C., uh, there's a there's a statuary hall. And every state is allowed to have two statues in that hall. And these statues are of, of people that they think were important to their state or that best embody the values of their state. One of New Mexico's two statues is Pope. Think about that. One of their statues is Pope, a revolutionary Indian leader from the 17th century, who rebelled against an empire an ocean away. This is an amazing story. This is an amazing story. And again, it gets to the heart of a lot of the issues we have with colonization in the New World. I mean, the notion of an English language, I think, is so strong uh, that few people even understood the American Southwest was colonized by another European power a hundred years before. Uh, the English really do anything of consequence on the East Coast. You won't fall into that trap on this series. I promise you that. Uh, Because I think this is an important story. And it's a very American story uh, for a lot of different reasons. Now, whenever Pope is released, he's angry, he's bitter, he's enraged. Uh, He's going to go to the northernmost Pueblo in the upper Rio Grande River Valley. That is the Taos Pueblo. It's also one of the biggest Lots of people live there, lots of people who have been sort of just out of the reach of the Spanish to that point, but have seen their neighbors and neighboring communities destroyed. Before this event, 1680, uh, there are going to be seven languages spoke uh, in the upper Rio Grande River Valley. By the end of it, there will be six. And that's important. Before this event we're about to talk about, there's going to be anywhere from 80 to 100 individual communities in that river valley. By the end of it, there's going to be 21. And they disappear for very 
important, very relevant reasons. Imperialism takes on many forms. That's the one thing as an imperial historian that I have studied, that I've seen. Some of it very intentional, some of it biological. Some unintended, but equally effective. And here's one when you talk about the Spanish arrival in the New World, and this is true whether you're talking about the Andes Mountains, whether you're talking about uh, Guatemala, whether you're talking about Mexico or Florida. This is the same story. One of the greatest weapons that the Spanish had with them was one they didn't even know, and it was epidemic disease. Whenever the Spanish came, they came to a world, North and South America, without cows, without goats, without sheep, without pigs. A world where people didn't live side by side with their animals. So therefore, they didn't develop immunities to the diseases that these animals carry with them all the time. They didn't drink the milk of these animals. They didn't eat the meat of these animals. So whenever the Spanish arrive, they bring smallpox. They bring plague. They bring diphtheria. They bring influenza. They bring the common cold. We've all suffered from some of these. But for a native person from North America who has never been around an organism like one of these viruses or diseases before, uh, it's a death sentence. The common cold would be a death sentence for them. So if you can believe it or not, by the time you get to, say, 1700, just from disease alone, some estimate that 80%, 80% of North and South America's native population was dead, wiped out by foreign enemies they never even saw because of the spread of infectious disease. 80%. That is a continent virtually cleared, emptied of its people. And Pope saw this. He didn't understand what he was seeing, but he saw it was one of the many, many problems uh, that came with the arrival of these uh, European newcomers. While he was at Taos, Pope would put himself in a kiva. A kiva is sort of a sacred storage place for corn uh, for the Pueblo peoples. Uh, and he would meditate. And he would have a vision. And the vision would be uh, three godlike figures appearing before him with glowing eyes and flames that shot from their hands and fingers telling Pope, you can bring prosperity back to your people. You can bring success back to your people. But the only way to do it is to dispel anything, even remotely Spanish, including Spanish people, from your world. And their world, of course, is the Rio Grande River Valley in the north. He comes out of that spiritual trance with a mission. And he begins to rally his people to his cause. He's a great speaker. He had to be to carry that kind of presence. Again, he wasn't from the Taos Pueblo community. Uh, he was from somewhere else. So his reputation would have preceded him. But he had a vision people could, could agree with. He had a destiny in mind for his land. And that's what the season's all about. Uh, people with altern alternative visions for what America could be. Uh, his was not the one that would win out, of course. And they believed in him. It would involve violence. It would involve an uprising. Uh, but by this point, I think it's safe to say the Pueblo were ready for 
measures that were so extreme. Again, one of the things I always challenge you to do in this season is think about the last really hot political debate you had, and then think about pulling out a weapon and murdering the person as a result. If you haven't gotten to that point, and I hope you haven't, by the way, uh, then you can't understand what these people are going through. And that's true for every episode of the season. And I'm going to say it in every episode of the season, because it's that big. But for this rebellion to work, Pope's rebellion to work, uh, he would need communication. He would need to operate in secret. He'd need to really reach a lot of people without the Spanish ever noticing it. And there's nothing easy about that. And he actually had a pretty ingenious way of doing it. Pope sent runners to each of the remaining Pueblo communities in the River Valley. And he gave each of them a long string with knots tied into it. And his message was, every morning when you wake up, untie one of these knots. And on the morning of the very last knot, that very last knot that is untied, that's the morning we strike the Spanish. And so when you think about a world without electricity, without text messaging, without anything at all uh, that could allow for long-distance communication, that's like a pretty pretty brilliant stroke on Pope's part. And by the way, that statue of him in the U.S. Capitol Dome, he's holding a string of knots for that reason. Uh, now, I'd love to tell you that system worked because it was so ingenious, but the Spanish did catch word of the rebellion a day before it was supposed to happen. But again, as a testament to the communication abilities, there were enough runners that went out that Pope told them, well, forget that, we're attacking the next day. Uh, and that was August 10th, a very famous day in New Mexico uh, of 1680. The attack went almost exactly as planned. 400 people are going to be killed. That includes innocent people, men, women, and children. And most importantly, uh, after almost a two-week period, that also included the capital of the New Mexico colony or New Mexico territory, Santa Fe itself. Santa Fe is a cool town. It's my kind of place. Um, but it's also one that, that, believe it or not, does maintain a connection to the 17th century. And one of the ways it does it is with the governor's palace. That's been redone a few times. But the location in which it sits in the basic design is the same governor's palace that was there during Pope's attack. And he would ultimately besiege that uh, and force the surrender of the people inside. Soldiers were killed, family members were killed, many priests were killed, and Pope was doing this all very specifically. He was doing it because he was sending a message. We don't want your empire. We don't want your language. We don't want your way of life, and we do not especially want your religion or your God here anymore. Because quite frankly, a lot of them had been killed as a result of the worship of that God. But here's where things change. And I think it's really important uh, in 1680. Normally, when we talk about Indian revolts, they all end the same way. They're brutal, they're violent, but they're ultimately suppressed. But the end of this one, the end of Pope's rebellion, the end of the uh, Pueblo revolt, the Spanish throw their hands in the air and they say, fine, we'll leave. And from 1680 to 1692, they peace out. The Pueblos win. Pope is the champion. Now think about that. 
Many of us have never even heard about this. It's a successful Indian rebellion. They actually forced European colonists who built roads, who built forts, who built missions and churches, who put enormous amounts of money into its infrastructure. They actually forced them out. He was a winner. It was an American Revolution 100 years before the American Revolution that most people actually know about. That's powerful stuff, man. So here's the next question. Why don't we know more about this? Well, here's how the story goes. Pope forces the Spanish out in 1680. And then some things happen. And in 1692, the Spanish come back and reconquer it all. And that's all true, by the way. But we don't know what happens in that 12-year interregnum period of total Pueblo freedom, 1680 to 1692. I can tell you why it ends. We don't know what happens there. And it gets back to one of these old adages of history. People always like to say, history is written by the winners. But not this time. In this case, history is written by the losers. The Spanish tell us what leads up to the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. And they tell us how they reclaim the area. But the Spanish aren't there in the meantime. And the Pueblo have no written linguistic component to tell us what they did in those 12 years. So what we have to do is piece it together using creative methods. Maybe archaeology. Maybe oral history. Uh, maybe some guesstimation. We'll never know for sure. But we do know a few things. And the biggest one is that whatever happened in those 12 years of, of real, true freedom for those men and women, it didn't take hold. We know Pope was forced out relatively early into this interregnum period. And we know already that even though the Spanish considered all of these Pueblo communities to be alike, at least alike enough they could classify them as Pueblo, the Pueblo never used that term. We also know they all had their own visions. And I want you to think about the American Revolution right at the end. You didn't have one country now free. You had 13 different states who really viewed themselves as individual countries. And they all had their own agendas, and they all had their own obligations to their people, and they all had their own fights. And a lot of people in Europe believe the United States would fail because of that. Look at politics today. Every region has its own issues that it specifically cares about. And in many cases, other regions go fundamentally against that. That's politics, baby. That's the way it is. But we worked it out in the United States, luckily for us. But I don't think the Pueblo ever could. I think the differences that existed in those communities uh, were too great for them to work out. And in 1692, the Spanish will come back in a in a reasonably bloodless way. I don't want to say it was totally nonviolent, but agreements will be signed, uh, and many of the formerly rebellious Pueblo communities will once again resubmit to Spanish rule. The Spanish had bigger fish to fry than the upper Rio Grande River Valley. They were moving into new territories, and everywhere they went, they were finding more and more hostile native peoples that needed their attention. So they're really kind of putting out fires all around them. 
but this will be, again, a fairly, not totally, but fairly painless reconquest in August of 1692. The Catholic churches went back up. The soldiers came back in. Now, I will say, uh, I think the, the priests... And these were Franciscans, Catholics of the Franciscan order, that went back into the region, knew they better take it easy on these people. You didn't see the forcible conversions uh, as much anymore. Uh, you didn't see the burning of sacred artifacts and the whipping and, and torture of holy men because they knew that priests had tried that before and were most definitely and pretty brutally killed. But you do see it brought back under control. And, and it merely makes you wonder and makes you question um, what a legacy of something like this should be. We know what happened in modern America, but we don't think about it that way because they spoke Spanish. We know that it was successful, but it can't be that important because it ultimately failed 12 years later. We know there was a religious bend to it, but it wasn't a holy religious event. I think what we really can settle on is the fact that the Pueblo peoples had a way of life. They saw these newcomers, these interlopers come in and begin to change it, and they revolted. But sometimes I wonder, what if they weren't the ones revolting? What if it was the colonists themselves? What if the Spanish were the rebels? I mean, think about that. For the Pueblo peoples who lived there, their way of life had been in place for centuries. These newcomers come in and start trying to change things. I mean, that very well in their minds might have been the revolution. They were just restoring order. And unlike people like Pontiac and Gayasuta and King Philip, Metacom, Tecumseh, we'll talk about all these guys this season, theirs actually worked. And all those guys I just mentioned came up short. So I think the Pueblo Revolt is a really important one for us to talk about. 100 years before the American Revolution. Because it happened, it was on American soil, but it was successful for as long as it lasted. And there's a lesson in it. Sometimes winning the revolution is the easy part. Keeping what you won, that is the enemy within your own political squabbles afterwards might be the important one. Thanks for joining us and for bearing with my Spanish. Uh, I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.